Hi guys, this is Erica Weston with Fox Sports Midwest, and you're listening to my favorite St. Louis Blues hockey podcast, Let's Go Blues Radio. Hi there, everyone. I'm Haley Wickenheiser, and this is Let's Go Blues Radio, past to the future. I need one win. What are you going to do to get me that? Selfish hockey. That's right. Selfish hockey. Break it down. Skate the puck. Don't pass it. Headman's still going to be there when you catch up, boy. Take it coast to coast. Shots from poor angles are still shots. Fuck and a half, two minute shifts, three minutes even. Cruise the blue line to catch your breath. Bad bounce, that's a good breakaway. Gotta get the bounces, boys. This is Let's Go Blues Radio, Past to the Future. Special episode, folks. I'm glad you could join me for it. This is Season 8, Episode 69, Franchise Episode All-Time, Number 255. Before we get into why this episode is so special, I want to give a shout-out to Julio Cesar in Brazil. Make sure you check out his YouTube channel. Uh, You can find it on our show page over at letsgoblues.com slash radio. There's a link at the bottom, and then, of course... Uh, the uh, the YouTube video that accompanies this episode, uh, w- the interview we have with our first guest, is uh, is also a video on YouTube and, and now on Facebook as well. Um, but uh, you can check out on the YouTube link. Uh, that is where you'll find Julio's channel. Uh, he's the one that did this great song you're hearing in the background. Uh, so well done. Love this sound. Love the way it is. And uh, I was when I heard this, I wanted to get somebody local. But I heard this version, and I said, man, i got to have it. That is too good for what I'm planning on doing for this special series of interviews with uh, former players and people talking about prospects. So I decided to reach out to him, and I'm glad I did. Well, again, before we get into today's uh, big episode, um, obviously there's uh, there's two big things that I want to touch on real quick uh, going on with the Blues. First of all, Jay Bomeister has been nominated for the Bill Masterton Trophy, which uh, goes out to the uh, most dedicated sportsmanlike player, that kind of thing, and um, it's uh, it, it, dedication to the game is kind of the big thing. And Jay is the obvious slam dunk pick for the Blues. Uh, every team gets one, uh, so uh, happy to see that uh, Jay is the one that will be representing the Blues when they hand this one out. But uh, I know a host of this show, uh, Mister. Kurt Price has said that uh, on Twitter that he thinks that uh, go ahead and hand it to Jay Bobeaster now. I do think Bobby Ryan is actually going to win it. Um, it you know you could you could make a case for Jay. I think Jay's a, a at least a top three finisher out of all uh, thirty one potential winners. But um, you know, and again, it's, it's something nice to be nominated for. You know, your entire team uh, is behind you on that. But uh, Bobby Ryan, what he's been through in the in the last little while. Uh, I think he will be your slam dunk winner, but I know Kurt Price wants to argue with me, but uh, maybe we'll do that on the next show. Uh, So let's, oh, also one more thing I wanted to get to before we get to our guests. Just want to say Friday, June 12th. How about that? One year anniversary of our Blues winning the Stanley Cup. Crazy stuff. Can't believe it's been a year. I uh, can't believe they're still defending champions at this point, basically. I mean, they haven't been dethroned yet, so 
it's interesting to say that, but um, yeah, I always said the world was going to end when the Blues won the Stanley Cup. So maybe it did, and we just don't know it yet. But uh, but very cool though. It's been a year. It's hard to believe uh, what a year it's been, huh? I mean, good lord, it's. Uh, I'm still celebrating this team finally pulling it out. And um, speaking of celebrating a Blues Stanley Cup victory, let's get to our guest, shall we? Uh, the first guest of the show, the past portion of the show. Mr. St. Louis Blue himself, I guess you could argue Bobby Plager gets that title, but um, I think if if you had a runner-up for that, it would definitely be the guest of today's show, Bernie Federko, 1,073 points, leads the Blues all-time, uh, that's what he put up as a, in a Blues uniform, Hall of Famer, uh, All-Star Center, um, one of the most underrated players to ever play the game and then of course the excellent announcer that you hear uh on fox sports midwest and then again just somebody who bleeds blue somebody who's been there through it all um since he was drafted by the team and i've said this before he is a gentleman and just a a dude who loves to just sit down and talk hockey so um so just sit back and enjoy this one because it's a lot of fun talking with mr federko and uh, I think it, you'll really enjoy it. Uh, but also, do not tune away after Mr. Federko's interview, because I welcome back friend of the show, Marcus Boudelier of the OHLnetwork.ca. We, I know we, we've talked about some mid-level prospects on this show a little bit, uh, and we're going to have some more. But we're going to talk about one, and you could call him a mid-level prospect if you want, but he is an interesting story and somebody that you are going to want to hear about. Uh, we talk about Tyler Tucker, who is currently in the OHL, Flint Firebergs to be exact. Uh, he is a 2018 seventh-round pick. Um, so you hear that, you say seventh-round, well, he, that's probably nothing, right? Well, he has really turned his game around. Uh, he was kind of just a defensive defenseman when he was drafted. Nothing really special offensively. He's completely turned his game around. He's become a complete player uh, worthy of keeping an eye on for you Blues fans who uh, may be uh, looking for a prospect to watch. Uh, definitely want to take a look at Tyler Tucker, again, a defenseman for the Flint Firebirds. I talked to Marcus Boudelier, and that is a very worthy interview uh, because Marcus has some great insight on somebody I think will be seeing NHL ice uh, in the next couple of years. So uh, definitely want to keep an eye out for Tyler Tucker. But enough of me blabbing. Let's uh, let's get to some of these great interviews with uh, these great guests. Just two guys that uh, friends of the show, we will call them, and uh, really know their hockey. But first, we will get to Bernie Federko. And this is Jeff with Let's Go Blues Radio, Past to the Future. Uh, I am very honored to have yet another Hall of Famer on the show. Uh, we just had Grant Fuhr on. We've had a couple other big guests, but uh, none bigger than who I'm going to talk to right now, Mr. Bernie Federko, longtime St. Louis Blue. Bernie, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Jeff, my pleasure. Yeah, uh, I know you're a big fan of the show, so uh, it's it's probably just as much of an honor for you as it is for me. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Bernie, first of all, uh, something that, that's going to be an ongoing theme here uh, with our conversation, and for those that have not read uh, Bernie's book, 
uh, My Blues Note. That is a great read, um, and I recommend anybody who hasn't read it to give it a read because a lot of what we're going to talk about here comes from that book. Um, I just reread it for a second time and enjoyed it just as much the second time as I did the first time. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you, now, you you kind of mentioned uh, before we even started recording here that you're an open book, and you definitely laid everything out on the line in your book, but at the same time, and I know that you worked with a friend of the show, Jeremy Rutherford, in writing this book, but how hard was it for you, uh, who I take as a pretty humble guy, to sit and just write about yourself? I mean, uh, I'm sure that was pretty difficult for somebody like you. Well, it was kind of really difficult, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, when JR brought me the idea, um, you know, it was kind of, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? And it was kind of, you know, my family, my wife and, and my son said, yeah, dad, why don't you, why don't you do it? I mean, uh, if not for anything else, do it for the you know time when, when, when I have grandkids, at least the, <laughs> your grandkids will know a little more about your life. So uh, it was, it was very difficult. I mean, there was a lot of research. I mean, it took us a couple of years to get everything uh, in place. I wanted to be, you know, very honest with it. I wanted to be, you know, really fair with everything. Uh, and and you really, there, there was a lot of people to talk to, you know, whether it was my you know, my mom and my brothers and a lot of, you know, dear friends, a lot of teammates and this and that. So uh, there's a lot of things that had to be, uh, I guess, really researched because, uh, you know, it's a long time ago. You know, I'm 64 years old right now. Uh, when you go back to the early days, especially, it was a lot of, you know, things that you don't remember. And I had to have a, a lot of people, you know, help me with a lot of stuff. But, uh, um, you know, looking back after the two years, and it, it was, it was a major ordeal, but uh, I was very, uh, uh, delighted when when it was finally finished. I, I felt that uh, you know we we got the things that we you know was was really part of my life. That was you know this is my been my life, and uh, we just felt that uh, once we had it done uh, and looked at it, that uh, it, it, we were pretty uh, pretty pretty happy with it. Uh, so I think the most important question that comes from this book is: Do you still play the saxophone? Do I know? You know what? It's still sitting here in in the library. Uh, it's in the case. Actually, the case is open and it's sitting there. But you know what? I would love to at some point in time. And actually, during this coronavirus deal, I should have been trying to opt into that and buy a new read. But you know, all the pads have dried out. It hasn't been used for so long um, <laughs> that I don't think I could even attempt it. But it was a it was a fun instrument to play. You know, but that's way too long ago to even probably even think that I'm going to even try ever again. Yeah, that's uh, that. That was a fun part of the book when you talked about your mom making you uh, do that in front of uh, in front of her group of people and in, in order to play hockey, and and it just goes <laughs> to show what us crazy hockey players would do to get back on the rink. You got it. Hey, whatever it takes. Sometimes that's, that's right. That's right. Um, so I wanted to ask you too, mostly uh, something that that I've always wondered with you. You lived through some crazy times with the St. Louis Blues, and and none crazier than when uh, they were in talks to move to Saskatoon, uh, your home province, uh, or Saskatchewan, your home province. Um, you talked about it a little bit in the book, but I wanted to ask you, too, um, how weird was that for you? I mean, obviously, you you, you kind of said in the book that your heart was in St. Louis. You didn't really want the team to move, but at the same time, going home and playing professional hockey sounds pretty good. Yeah, those were trying times. That year, 82, 83, was really a tough time. I mean, I felt, you know, for the St. Louis, you know, fans, I felt for, really for Emil Francis, who was trying to keep this thing uh, together. I mean, um, you know, and hey, I'd been here already six years. I mean, this was home for us. My wife, we had, a, you know, we had one son already, and, 
Um, we loved it here in St. Louis. So, I mean, that whole year was weird. I mean, just from the announcement in really November that there was a possibility that uh, we were going to be moving to Saskatoon, which of course is my hometown. My wife's from there as well. I played my junior hockey there. So, um, you know, we, we got a lot of the, the press that was coming out of there was coming to us because, you know, we have so much family and friends there. So everybody was calling us on a daily basis. Hey, is this happening? Is this happening? What's going on? This, that. And we really, we were the ones that were in limbo. We had no idea what was going on. I think it was, it really, I think showed in our play. We didn't have a very good year that year. Um, You know, we struggled uh, the entire team. You know, we tried to keep it together. I mean, I think Mark Flager did a a marvelous job and Namo Friends was trying to, you know, making sure try to concentrate on hockey not worry about what's going to happen, but it was trying. I mean, uh, we're, we're going to Saskatoon, and then all of a sudden, um, when the league announced that we were not going to allow that sale, um, then all of a sudden we thought, gee, we went home for the summer. Are we going to end up in an expansion draft? Are we going to get dispersed? Is it going to be a dispersal draft? Where, where are we all going to get into different situations where you know, all great friends and teammates, are we all going to end up on different teams and then move forward? So, uh, you know, I look back at that year, and, and it was very, very trying just to, you know, to keep your mind in what you were trying to do, to try to play hockey, to try to win games, to try to do a lot of things. And it, it was very, very difficult. I mean, um, you know, Ariel and Est, uh, it wasn't in the picture yet. We didn't know that that was a thing that was going to come. But uh, uh, it was, for me, it was kind of, well, you know what, it's going to be fine if we go back to Saskatoon. It would be a little different for us uh, because, you know, a lot of family run, a lot of friends that might have been, a little hard on, on, on the game itself, uh, you know, having to concentrate a little more with all the, you know, extracurricular activities going on all around you with all the family and friends. But, um, you know, we always said, too, and can Saskatoon support it? I mean, we knew uh, it's a smaller town, you know, 250,000 people. Um, National Hockey League, uh, will this be able to be a long-term move to go to Saskatoon? So there were so many factors involved, Jeff, that it was a difficult time, and um, you know, when Harry Ones finally came in and, and did buy the team uh, in the middle of the summer, I think there was a lot of relief on, on every one of our, our, our players. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously we were very excited to be able to stay here in St. Louis. So Harry Ornest uh, is a guy that um, that we talk about on the show a lot and uh, Ralston Perina as well. And I'm sure for you it's, it's, uh, it's similar that when he came in and bought the team, it, you felt like it was a savior moment. It was... This guy is a god. We praise him for everything he's done. But, uh, again, going by your book, the name of the chapter where you start talking about Harry Ornest is Cheapskate Harry. And uh, uh, Blues fans know a lot of what happened in that time. But uh, what was it like playing under an owner like Harry Ornest? Well, it was it was way different. I mean, uh, there's no question. I mean, you know, playing for Emil Francis, playing for Ralston Purina was, was fantastic. I mean, they treated us like you're supposed to be treated in the National Hockey League. I mean, it's, uh, you know, professional sport, and uh, it's a national professional sport, and, and you know, everything was, was first class. Uh, you know, um, R. Haldine was the uh, uh, chairman of the board at the time, and, and everything was, was great. I mean, I can't say enough about what Ralston did for us and the way Emil Francis treated us, too, as, as the general manager. But, um, you know, when Harry came in, yes, we were – thankful that he actually bought the team and we were going to stay here in St. Louis. But when, you know, we started to see the, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know what the, what I want to say, the, the, the program, the way it was started, I mean, everything was uh, bottom line. I mean, everything from um, the organization itself. I mean, we didn't really have a big minor league system. Um, you know, all our flights, uh, when we traveled, uh, we took the cheapest flight, which was usually the earliest in the morning. Um, you know, no, no matter what, 
one time, how late the game was the night before, we'd get on a plane early in the morning, we'd have to connect through one or two cities to, to make it back home or to another city because it was the cheaper flights when we you know, were on the road. If we played Chicago four times, we stayed at four different hotels each time we went there in Chicago because there was introductory rates uh, to try a new hotel all the time. So, I mean, I guess what we can call it austerity. I don't know whatever if you want to call it cheap, you can call it whatever you want. But, I mean, things were, were not run, um, you know, like we had been used to under Emo Francis. I mean, all of a sudden we didn't have a pregame meal. That was canceled out. So uh, we had to find places to eat on the road uh, after our morning skate so that we could, you know, get our pregame meal, meal before our nap, before, before the game to play. So there was a lot of hard times uh, during that. I mean, um, you know, nothing was given to us, and uh, it was tough playing that way. And, uh, and we always say, though, is sometimes when when things are tough, uh, you know, I think you stick closer together and you become more close-knit. And I think that I can honestly say that about those three years. I mean, uh, with uh, Jacques Demers and, you know, Barkley Plager and, and all the guys we had, we only had basically 25 guys in the organization. And, uh, you know, we got to know each other. We, um, you know, got to... Uh, spend an awful lot of time, you know, on the road, especially because of all the different travel that we did, and uh, you know, we get got to know each other very, very well. And I think that's maybe led to some of our success in seventy and uh, eighty six. There, when we went to the semifinal because we were such a close knit team that we were playing all for one, one for all. And uh, you know, Ron Cron did a pretty good job, you know, keeping uh, us competitive. And you know, Bark and, and Jacques did a great job on the, you know, bench on this, uh, you know coaching side of it to making sure that we were competitive and um, that we were accountable for what we were doing so it was a strange times and you know it's always when you're playing at the time you know you laugh about things you you, you do what you have to do and, and you know you're paid to get your job the job done but I think during that time you know we laughed about a lot of things and even though it, was, it hurt us in, in, in a lot of the factors but um, when you look back I think it's a lot harder on you uh, the way the things that we went through than, than when you were going through it because it was a job and you didn't know any better, so you just went along with it. Uh, so something else that was kind of a theme of your book was uh, discussing how players like uh, Mike Leud, Rob Ramage, Perry Turnbull, Joey Mullen, all guys you considered friends and good teammates, uh, how they all went on and, and uh, kind of started the trend of players leaving St. Louis and going on to win a cup. Um, do you think if, if the Blues had held on to players like that, that your team would have been able to challenge more for a Stanley Cup? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question when you see the players that have come through our organization. I mean, uh, we were all around the same age. I mean, uh, you mentioned them. I mean, Joey Mullen uh, was traded because of a contract dispute. Same thing with Mike Leute. Uh, you know, one of, I think, one of the most underrated goaltenders, you know, in the NHL history. I mean, Mike was just great for us. Uh, uh, Joey, Rob Ramage, Doug Gilmore. I mean, we had so many you know, really good players that come through here. If we could have kind of stuck with everybody, we could have built um, uh, and get a stronger team. Yeah, I think that we would have obviously had a chance to win the Cup. And, I, you know, Brian Sutter and I talked about that a lot when things were happening is that, you know, we supposedly were the nucleus and, you know, what you're supposed to build around the nucleus. And uh, we were very proud of that. But every time we started building around the nucleus, something happened. And uh, because of the contract issue, you know, we were, you know, we lost really good players that could have made us a much better team. And I think it really, um, you know, looking back at Brian's and my career, you know, we would have loved to have won a cup here in town. And we really believe that if we would have been able to do that, it was like, we were the ones that everybody, all these guys were getting to go somewhere else. And 
getting to play on championship teams and, you know, Joey going and Rammer going to Calgary winning a cup. I mean, you know, we were the ones that were here, and yeah, we were happy to stay here, but we weren't winning the Cups, and all these other guys that, were, that should have been staying here that were getting a chance to win them. So yeah, it was very frustrating, and uh, I think it'd always be frustrating looking back at those times. Uh, so obviously, you, you love St. Louis, obviously. You're, you're still here. You've been here forever. Uh, you moved back here after being traded to Detroit and playing a season there. Um, but if you were to look back and, and, let's say, go back and do it all again, would you want to go back and possibly be traded to a possible Stanley Cup contender, or would you do it all again with the St. Louis Blues? No, I would do it all again. I mean, I'd like to have you know some control on the things that, that maybe didn't happen. I mean, I look back at our team in 80-81 when we you know, challenged the New York Islanders, when we finished with 107 points. We had a great hockey club, and it's a shame that we weren't able to keep that hockey club together and, and, and you know um, get two or three chances at the Islanders in the next two or three years with, with the same team. But uh, no, I mean, I, I'm very proud that I was uh, a part of the St. Louis Blues for 13 years. I wish it would have never happened that it was traded to Detroit. I mean, that was not my control. Um, you know, I, I think that you see nowadays, I mean, that doesn't really happen unless the player wants it to happen because um, you guys have got no trade clauses. They've got no movement clauses. This that. We never had any of that stuff. We had no free agency. We had anything. So we were, totally out of control all the time but um no i would have never changed anything else i would love to have that as we just talked about guys like grammar and, and you know joey and all these guys Ludi, all these guys be able to stick around and, and i think that we would have had an honest chance at a cup but uh, you know what uh such what happens when in, in business such what happens when you had you know so many ownership changes and i think that's always uh a factor i mean you know, we went from the Solomons to, you know, to uh, Ralston to Harry Arnest and, of course, to Mike Shanahan. And then since then, you know, there's been a number of changes. And, and I think that finally, you know, there is a local group here on, headed by, you know, Tom Stillman that has a lot of great, uh, you know, investors here that are, that are St. Louis's that, that said, hey, enough's enough. We're going to go for the gusto here and we're going to put everything together and win a cup. And that's exactly what happened last year. So obviously you uh, you've seen a lot of ownership uh, as you mentioned in St. Louis uh, uh, back in your playing days to now you know you've even seen the lorries the checkets um, all of those so compared to what you've seen in the past where do you rank Tom Stillman as an owner of the organization? Well, I think I mean I, I just love what they've done. I mean you know what I mean I I only played one year under the Solomons and you know talking to the. You know, the old guys that played for the – they, they talked to Bobby Player and Barkley and all those guys that played for the Solomons. They said it was they, – they said it was – you couldn't get a, got a, got a better you know, ownership group. I mean, they used to take the guys down and their families to poor at the end of the season. They treated them like gold. And, uh, I mean, I can't say that that happened to me because they were, you know, going kind of under when they were selling the team when I came in 76, 77. But Ralston traded us great. Um, you know, Harry, we all know that story there. I mean, I thought, you know, that – um, you know, Mike Shanahan was fantastic. I thought he treated us, you know, like goals. I mean, I'm going to tell you, the Lorries were fantastic. I mean, the Lorries, you know, put on everything, um, you know, on the table. They spent a ton of money trying to to, 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 to win a championship here in St. Louis. And it's a shame that uh, that wasn't able to happen, you know, when they, you know, win the uh, uh, President's Trophy back in 2000. But uh, I think that when you look at all the different ownership groups, and I think that the one thing, I mean, Mike Shanahan was a lot like Tom Stillman, is that he was a local guy. He was a guy that, you know, wanted uh, to be, uh, you know, to win not just for him, but for the city of St. Louis. And I think Mike was like that. And, and I think that Mr. Shanahan, 
you know, was always talking about, you know, um, you know, the the civic pride here. This is what it was all about. And I think that Tom Stone has said that same thing. You know, the investors that are involved too are, are local San Luisans too that have done very well in the business community and they, they want to give back. So I, I think that um, they've been rewarded. I mean, they probably no doubt have been the best group that you could have here, the best ownership group that we've ever had here in San Luis. And, uh, I think consequently they've been rewarded for that, for, you know, getting the Stanley Cup because they, they really, they went for it and, and they've been able to deliver. And I think that's just fantastic. So you mentioned your trade to Detroit at the end of your career. And, and I think every Blues fan would agree that that was a move nobody liked. Uh, you know, yes, we, we got Adam Oates out of it, which was great for the organization. But seeing you traded, especially to the Red Wings, was a very tough situation. My father, I remember him uh, telling me we, when you went in the Hall of Fame, uh, one of his friends joked and said, oh, is he going to go in as a Detroit Red Wing? And my dad got the coldest look on his face and said, Bernie Federico was not a Detroit Red Wing. And uh, <laughs> he just yeah. he refused to admit it. So how hard was it for you to, I mean, again, you talk about it in your book, but um, kind of not even just, ex- obviously you had no choice, but kind of personally, how hard was it for you to accept that trade to Detroit? Well, it was extremely, it was, it was extremely, um, you know, disappointing. I mean, uh, uh, to, to, first of all, you know, it's something that I really never expected. I mean, I was going into and sign really what I thought was going to be my last contract. I'd been here 13 years. I wanted, you know, one, one year and an option, two years left. And that was going to be it for me. And I was 33 years old at the time. And, uh, I just, you know, finally thought that, Hey, I've been here this long. You know, nothing's going to happen now because you never see, you never feel secure in the game of hockey, especially back then in those days. But, uh, it was a shock to me. Uh, I was, uh, devastated to say the least, uh, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard though, Jeff, because, you know, there, there's, there's always, you know, more than one story. Um, obviously, you know, Jacques Demers wanted me, um, you know, they, you know, obviously, you know, had discussions with the blues and, you know what, Adam Oates is a, is a great hockey player. And I think, you know, I've talked to Oatsy about that, you know, over the course of the years. I mean, I think if, if Adam wouldn't have got that opportunity to get out of Detroit, who knows if we would ever see how great a player he was. But he got the opportunity, you know, to play, to get out from playing from behind Steve Eisenman, who was such a great player. But Oatsy got the chance to become the number one guy and playing with Holly and the two of them, you know, showed what they did. And, of course, you know, Adam, Hall of Fame player as well. But, um, you know what? Business is business, and you know what? You, you, it, it shocks you sometimes, and I think uh, um, it really shocked me because I thought I'd given my heart and soul to the organization um, through, through all those years, and, and it really, it really hurt me a lot. But you know, when you look back, business is business, and that's what the Ron Cron was looking for. He was looking for business, and he made the deal. And uh, a lot of times, that just happens, and you know, you're the consequence that that goes with it, and that's what I was, and. It was a very difficult year for me in Detroit. Yeah, control here, Jeff. I was controlling, you know, with the Blues. I was, you know, being here a long time. Now you go to a new team, a new city, you move your family, and that was trying times. Yeah, I bet it was. Um, So you retired just after that season at 34. Um, Do you think that you had the potential to play longer if you were given the opportunity? I know in your book you mentioned the Bruins had called and were considering a one-year deal for you, but you wanted longer. Um, do you think you could have played until thir- you were 35, 36, 37 years old? Oh, yeah. There's no question I felt that I could have. I mean, I was in great shape. I mean, I've always been in great shape. I've always keep myself in good shape. So, um, you know, I think that uh, that year in Detroit, 
took a lot out of me, you know, heart and soul wise. I mean, uh, to go to Detroit, uh, it was totally different. You know, it was entirely different for my family. Um, it was learning something totally new. Uh, and it's hard as an old dog, I guess, to learn new tricks. But, I mean, hockey-wise, I mean, I still had a pretty good year when you consider, I mean, I think I ended up third on the team in scoring there behind, you know, Steve Eisenman and, and Gerard Gallant. Um, you know, I, I don't even remember, I can't remember what, what points I had there. I mean, close to 60 points, I think, I had uh, during that year. So, I mean, there's no question I felt that I could still play, but uh, the fact of the matter was is that I probably was only going to play until I was 35, so that means I had one more year that I was going to play because really in those days no one really played beyond the age of 35. And for me to kind of uproot the family again, you know, okay, where am I going to go? Am I going to have the same experience? And it was a losing atmosphere in Detroit. You know, we didn't make the playoffs. I mean, I think a lot of the fun uh, of the game that I had had, I mean, I had, you know, we'd made the playoffs with the Blues, you know, every time, you know, every year from 78, 79, we'd been in the playoffs and we were always in the playoffs. So, I mean, it was, it was a really hard year for me. And I think I lost a lot of love for the game uh, during that year. And, 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 and when the time came there, I just said, no, I'm not going to move the family. There's no reason for me to go ahead and, and, you know, try to kind of hang on per se. And that's how we want to talk about it. But uh, there's no question I felt that I could still play. It just, I think I just lost, lost a lot of motivation. I just thought it was, probably more important to just you know move on and, and you know just get back to being a family man and, and see what happened from there and start a new career. So speaking of your family, um, somebody again who's constantly brought up in your book and with good reason is your wife Bernadette. Um, I've fortunate enough to to run into Bernadette before. Seems like a very nice person. Um, and again, I, obviously, I know you as well. And um, you guys just seem like very down to earth people. And um, I can see why the relationship works, but. Um, you know, how supportive was, was Bernadette of all your career decisions to stay in St. Louis and not go chase a cup and maybe go chase more money somewhere else? Was she always supportive, supportive of what you wanted to do? Yeah, you know, it's always been, I don't even want to call it supportive, but it's always, it's always been, uh, you know, it's been a, a, a dual uh, decision. I mean, everything that I've done, you know, is because of her and everything that we did was together, even... You know, yes, on the ice, I had to do what I had to do, but she was the one that was always supportive. She was the one that was there to talk to. She was my friend when I needed support. Uh, if things weren't going good, you know, well, she was the one that helped me out of the, you know, the dark times. And she was the one that really was excited with, with the good times. So, no, um, you know, we were in it together, you know, raising the kids. I mean, she had a lot more onus put on her, you know, with all our travel and schedule. And, uh, she had three sons to, uh, you know, to, 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 to raise and, and nurture and this and that. So um, I think that uh, it's that way with, with really with all professional athletes is that, you know, when you have the wife that really you have to really count on and, and you have to really have someone that you can lean on. And she has been always there and uh, still is there. And, uh, you know, every decision that we always made, that uh, we made together. And, uh, you know, again, she was very supportive when I, when I you know, made the, the decision to say, I think it's time to hang it up. She was all for it and said, hey, this is your life. This is, you know, your job. If you don't feel that you want to do it anymore, hey, let's let's move on to the next chapter. And that's kind of exactly what we did. So, again, uh, a kind of an ongoing theme with the book was, uh, was your relationships with other people. Uh, one of them that I found the most interesting was Brian Sutter. Um, you know, everybody knows that you two played a very long time together. Uh, a lot of the success he had was because of you and vice versa. Um, so 
it's funny when 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 I got to the part where uh, he became coach, that was all shocking to me. I had no idea there was any kind of a, a weird. Uh, I guess you could call it a falling out between you two. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, it, since this book came out, have you had a chance to talk to uh, to Brian and, and kind of patch all that happened with between you two? No, you know, there's really nothing that's really happened. I, I mean, you can honestly say, I mean, yeah, I've seen him a couple of times and we're cordial to each other. You know, we had a couple of beer when he came into the card show what, last year. Um, and we've really never had any discussions about the book. I don't even know if he read the book, to be honest, but he probably hasn't. So, um, you know what? He went his way and, and I went my way, as I said in the book. Uh, he was the boss. He was the one that became coach. He was management. He made the decision that, uh, you know what, that uh, we had to part ways as friends because he just felt that he had to be on the other side of the fence. So, you know what, uh, I respect what he wanted to do, and uh, that's exactly what he did. He uh, he chose to, you know, to, 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 he chose the management and, and coaching over um, his friendship with, the, you know, his teammates, his players. And, you know, a lot of times you have to separate, I, I guess, yourself from, from your teammates when you become their bosses. So, uh, um, you know, that's something that, uh, uh, as I said, uh, I think that he missed out on a whole bunch of good stuff by, by going that route. But, you know, that's a decision that he made, and he has to live with that. And I'm fine with the decision uh, that I had to live with is that, you know what, I had to move on. And uh, as I did, I went and did my job in Detroit and came back and, you know, found uh, another way of, of making a living and uh, you know what I'm still you know so proud to be a part uh, of the blues and being part of the television and, and all kinds of stuff. still be a part of the community here in San Jose and I think that's what's so great about it but Brian and I are still going to be friends we'll always be friends and we have a you know a lot of things that that happened for each other in, in the early years but uh, you know sometimes uh, you know paths change and, and that's kind of what what did for both of us. Uh, something that that's always talked about with you, and and I think it's funny because I was listening to a podcast by a couple of gentlemen who are based in uh, California, and they're big hockey fans. They get the sport, but you know, obviously, they're newer hockey fans compared to people like me and you. Um, they were going over Hall of Famers from each team, and they mentioned Bernie Federko, and they were like, "Oh, Bernie Federko, I remember him, but how is he in the Hall of Fame?" And then they looked up your numbers, and they were. Oh my goodness, he had some fantastic numbers and some great years in St. Louis. And and it just goes to show for me how you are always so overlooked uh as an elite NHL player. And obviously you played in a time of Wayne Gretzky and, and other greats in the league. But um why do you think it was that you were so overlooked? Was it because you were playing in St. Louis? Yeah, I think that's probably mostly. I mean, again, we're not a you know big market t- town, you know, at the time. Uh, I think that you the National Hockey League during all those years. I mean, uh, basically it was the teams that from Canada. I mean, there was no television. I mean, what we had half a dozen games on TV um, every year, you know, during those years. So we didn't get a lot of exposure. So, I mean, when we got to play in Canada, Hockey Night in Canada once a year, Toronto once a year, and Montreal, that's really the only time that anybody else, you know, really saw us play. So, um, you know, when you're in a small market uh, town, uh, small, small market team. It, it really is, sometimes can be very frustrating, and I, you know, I kind of went through that you know, through my career. I mean, um, you know, it, I played against the same players as everybody else did, and my numbers are uh, probably better than than most uh, uh, of the, the rest of the guys that, that that I played against. So, I mean, it, that's not up to me. I said that you know so many times is that 
I mean, there was a lot of great players in the league. And uh, I think in our days with all-star games, there was only, you know, you went nowadays, they don't go by, you know, what position you play. You're the forward or defenseman, and they picked the all-star game based on that. In, in our day, it was four centers, four wingers, you know, left wingers, four right wingers. So, um, you know, there was a lot of good center rights that I made that I don't feel belittled by any means by not, you know, being behind them. And, you know, guys like Dennis Savard, Brian Trache, you know, Dale Howard, and Wayne Gretzky and Bessie. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, it was frustrating during those times. I mean, I was, but I think I finished the top 10 scorers eight times and still was only on a couple of all-star, uh, you know, teams. But that's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, you can't promote yourself. It takes somebody else to do that. And it's the press that uh, really kind of controls that. And we had, what, one newspaper and, you know what, six games on TV on KPLR, it's, it's pretty hard to get <laughs> the name out and the recognition, but that's all you got. Yeah, no, it's true. I um, Again, that's something that uh, that my dad and I have talked about many times, how it just seems like your name was always overlooked for things. And, you know, I was, I'm an 85 kid, so I remember the end of your career, but everything I've seen from your past games, it's just, I mean, the ridiculous hands, the speed, the, uh, the know-how, the smarts. Uh, so to you, what do you think was your best attribute on the rink? Well, I was, a, I mean, I was a pass first uh, player. I mean, uh, I always, you know, was under the impression, that's the way I was always taught, that the, the person in the best spot to score a goal gets the puck. So, um, you know, I I think was very fortunate that I was gifted as, uh, you know, with, with great, uh, uh, I guess, puck sense to know when to dish the puck off, how to see the ice, how to slow the game down. And, um, you know, I had my way of playing the game. I mean, the, the game, you know, of our day was is a lot different than, than the, the day of today, or the game, I should say, of today is that, um, you know, as a center iceman, I got the puck, I got the line, and I slowed things down so that I could, you know, have wiggers coming from behind from late and just dishing the puck off. So I think that would probably be my biggest attribute is seeing the ice, you know, as if uh, it was a lot bigger than uh, what everybody else could see so I could find the holes and find the spots where, um, you know, the guys could get to where they're going to be open to, 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 to shoot the puck and score goals. But, you know, I've always, you know, took pride in, in being a, a passer. And, um, you know what, uh, I think that's kind of what, uh, if I look at myself, uh, that's kind of what I take most pride in is that I wanted to make everybody around me uh, a better player. And I, I felt that uh, a lot of players that I played with that maybe were not the greatest of players, but I made them you know, live up to or beyond their potential. And that's kind of what, what I took a lot of pride in. Uh, who was the most skilled player you feel like you ever played with? Uh, you know what, probably, you know, Joey Mullen, you know, as far as the balance that he had for a little guy, you know, but he could shoot the puck, he could do an awful lot of great things. And then, of course, you know, I got to play a year and a half with Brett, um, and there's no question that, you know, Brett was the best shooter that I had ever seen. When you got him the puck, I mean, it was off his stick, I and mean, he was always in a spot, and he was, you know, one of those guys that could always find the open spot. Uh, where he could, you know, get the shots. Consequently, that's why he scored 86 goals in a year. But, um, I mean, I think those, when you look at the talent of, of those guys, but, I mean, we had, you know, we had guys that, that came in here with a lot of talent, you know, guys like Wade Babbage, Perry Turnbull. I mean, you know, we had a lot of, you know, high draft picks that, that were here. And, and certainly, uh, you know what, you get a chance to, to play with them. You, you know, you try to find out what their, you know, best attributes are, and they try to find yours, and you should have, you know, box them all together uh, to, to, to make the, 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 you know, the, the, the best plans. And uh, that's kind of, 
and what I always tried to do my best with. Uh, Bernie, just a few more questions. I'll try to take up too much more of your time, but uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your post-hockey career. Um, so you mentioned again in your book that uh, you were – uh, picked up by KMOV uh, once you retired. That's why your family moved back. Um, so you've done a lot of jobs since then. KMOV, um, you had a golf show for a little while on Fox Sports Midwest. You've been a color analyst. You are in the studio now. Uh, what's your favorite position you've had after hockey? Well, no, it's been just fun, really, to be honest, Jeff. It's been fun being a part of the, of the, of the, you know, the broadcast crew. There's no question about it. I mean, uh, I think when you're playing and you're so in tune with the game itself, uh, uh, and you're a player, uh, I don't think you uh, don't you don't really get to experience and 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 really come from a from a, from the outside look and see how great the game is and how much fun it is and how how many things could could happen in the game and all of a sudden then you're done playing and then you get a chance to now you're a broadcaster you're not part of the team but you're watching and you're with the guys you're doing everything you're seeing all that stuff and i think that um is really kind of the the one of the great uh jobs that you can have because you can you're you're a part of it but you're outside of it where uh you're a, i guess you're on different rules you're on on, on different uh, uh i don't know what, what i'm trying to respect so it's just it's just a different way to be able to watch the game and yet be a part of it without being right there and i think that's what i've enjoyed the most you know watching the games knowing the guys uh, you know seeing you know their idiosyncrasies you know traveling with them on the road and uh, you know as especially as an older guy as time went on you know i'm you know, can be some of their grandfathers already at this day and age. So, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's been fascinating. And I, I it, it, that, that's just a great thing is to be a part of, still a part of the game and still part of the broadcast. I think that's just the, the I don't think you could have any more fun. Again, you mentioned a lot of times in your book that uh, you were interested in getting into team management. Uh, you even applied for the GM job when Mike Keenan was let go. Um, is, I mean, obviously you're, you're older now and you've, uh, witnessed much of the game as a broadcaster, and, and I'm sure, it's, like you said, it's something you love doing. But do you still have any kind of glimmer of hope that there could be a team management role for you? No, no, that's 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 far by gone now. That's that's ages ago now. I mean, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm an old man now. Uh, you know what? That's it's really it's still it's a young man's game. Uh, you know the the younger general managers now. I mean, and I'm really really glad what's happening too now, Jeff. So there's they're, they're, you know, they're, they're starting to hire former players. I mean, there was a long time there that there was no such things. They, they didn't hire the, the, the old, you know, the, the, the retired players, but now you've got guys like, you know, Steve Eisman has been doing a great job. You know, Billy Guerin getting the opportunity. I mean, there's more and more of, of the players, the really good players, uh, that get our opportunities to be general managers. And I really like that idea because I, I think that, you know, we've experienced an awful lot of, uh, uh, things that have happened in the game when we play and, and to be, you know, able to be uh, a part of that and, 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 you know, bring your experiences as a general manager, I think is, is, is a real positive thing. And, um, but my days, no, heck no. I, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm, I'm delighted to, to still, you know, broadcast the games, to still watch them and still feel part of it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, all with the cap era and all that stuff now, that's, uh, uh, Big, big business now, and uh, you know what? Um, I'll leave that up to the experts like Doug Armstrong and the guys that have been around an awful long time. Oh, oh yeah, I'm with you. I, I see the numbers that these guys have to deal with, Doug Armstrong and all that, and I'm like, 
you know, we can sit here as armchair GMs and say what he should do, but none of us understand the mathematics like he does. So I'm with you 100%. (laughs) Yeah, but it's still nice for us to do that. I mean, I think we all still are always going to be armchair quarterbacks or armchair general managers. I think we all, uh, you know, still watch the game and we all have an opinion. And I think that's what makes the the game of any game. That's, That's what makes sports so wonderful. Yeah, I agree with that. So, uh, again, at the end of the book, you do talk about uh, how great it was to play in that Winter Classic uh, uh, alumni game uh, in front of a sold-out crowd at Bush Stadium. And uh, you kind of kind of get to the point that that was one of your favorite moments uh, kind of ever, really. Um, but since then, you have been a part – you were part of the All-Star game this past year. They brought you out before the fastest skater. Um, and then, obviously, the Blues win in the Stanley Cup. Um what uh, what's your favorite after hockey moment you've had so far? Well, you know what? The Winter Classic was fantastic. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, I was able to, since I retired, I mean, I was able to play in a number of, you know, alumni um, games, you know, with uh, at the All-Star Game. I got to, you know, be a part of that three or four different times, which was an awful lot of fun and, you know, spend time with the greats. I mean, early on with Gordy Howe and Stan Makita, I mean, Bobby Howell, those were great times uh, when I first retired. But, you know, lately, I mean, the Winter Classic is as good as it got. Uh, to be able to be a part of that, I think that's something you kind of dream of, watching it on TV every year, how great it is, and to be a part of it, and then to have, what, 48,000 people there at Bush Stadium watching the game as well. I mean, we had a blast um, in the Hawks and us have had a rivalry for an awful long time, and just to be a part of that was was, was really great. Um, but I think, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to get many arguments about what happened last year with the Stanley Cup and uh, the parade and uh, just everything that came together, the way the team came together, and uh, the way that the, the city responded and all the energy that we had here. And, um, I mean, I don't think that uh, you can ever have a, a greater few months than, than, than what we had here in San Luis uh, over the course of the Stanley Cup run from last year. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that. So in the last line of your book, you do discuss that uh, you can't wait to be a part of the St. Louis Blues Stanley Cup parade. That was kind of your, your uh, closing thoughts. Um, so tell me, uh, now that that has happened, um, first of all, we'd love to see a part two of your book. And second of all, um, what, what was it like finally being a part of, I mean, obviously St. Louis, we all witnessed it together, but being a player who kind of has been tied to the organization for such a long time, obviously guys like you and Bobby Plager, um, what was it like for you? I mean, what did it mean to you for the Blues to finally pull it off and, and win the Stanley Cup? Well, let's put it this way. There's not going to be a sequel to that book. Let's put it, uh, I'll answer that quickly. But uh, you know what? No, I mean, I can't uh, I can't put into words and describe how, how, how exciting that was. Uh, um, that is something that I've waited you know, from 1976. I mean, when you get drafted by a team, uh, I think the goal of, of, of anybody that gets drafted, especially in the first round, is to, you know, to make the team and to be the nucleus of that team when you're a first-round pick. You want to be with that team for the retirement of your career, and you want to retire in that uniform, and you also want to win a Stanley Cup for the organization. And, I, you know, um, so for all those years, I mean, like the rest of the alumni here in town is that, we're fans. We're, we're friends of, of the players. We get to meet them. And, you know, once they put on that blue note like we did, um, you know, we're all alumni. We're all in this together. So uh, to see what they went through and to see how they came together, 
the way they won the cup last year that made every one of us alumni uh, feel so special and uh, we still feel that we're always we didn't have really to do with what happened last year but you know we've been part of the build of this we've been part of the of the hype of the blue note of, of, of what it means to the city and um, to finally see that happen was uh, I mean that was one of the you know fantastic moments of of my life when um, when that final buzzer went in Boston and I want to get to get down to the ice, and I was able to hoist the Stanley Cup uh, when I was standing on the ice. That was a, a very, very special moment. In fact, I still someone sent me a picture of that, um, and I have it with me uh, here in the house, here on the bookshelf. Uh, uh, I think just you can see the elation in my eyes, and, and I don't even remember what uh, how, he, how how loud I yelled, but it was it was pretty special, and, I, and I, I'll never forget that moment um, for the rest of my life. And you know, hopefully, we'll see more of those. And, uh, hopefully we'll see some more Stanley Cups during the time, but uh, I think the first one everybody says is really the most special, but it would be nice to see a whole bunch more of those as well here for the San Luis fans. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and get this out of the way, too. So are you uh, a superstitious guy? Was that the first time you ever touched the Stanley Cup? Yes, it was. I mean, I've been with the Cup many times at the Hall of Fame and this and that, and, um, you know, with different things that we've done, uh, and I've taken pictures standing behind it, and uh, around it, but uh, you know, my kids had, had you know had, had held it, touched it before, and this and that. But no, that was the first time that I had ever actually touched it, and yeah, it was the first time that I got to touch it. it was the first time I got to hold it over my head, so it was, it was pretty special. That's pretty great. Um, so I wanted to ask you one more question too, because uh, just a kind of an update on a friend uh, of yours, I'm sure, uh, John Kelly. Uh, unfortunately, um, I had COVID-19. I know he was donating platelets and all that uh, to help with uh, people who are suffering from what he went through. Um, have you been in touch with him? How is he doing? Um, and is he ready to go for the upcoming season? Yeah, from what I understand, I've talked to John a couple of times. He's feeling good. Everything's passed. and He's feeling healthy and everything. So I think he, like everybody else, is chopping at the bit. Uh, you know, the Kelly family is very synonymous with the announcing here in, in St. Louis's good dad, the great Dan Kelly. And, of course, John has just been spectacular here as well. So, you know, John, like everybody else here and better hockey fans, wants this season to start again. And hopefully uh, sometimes in July or August we can get back at it. And it would sure be nice to see uh, the guys back on the ice once again. Uh, so this is Bernie Federko joining Let's Go Blues Radio. And, uh, Bernie, this has been uh, an absolute check mark for me in my career and in my life Uh so back when I was in the media and I was, uh, uh, I'll go and tell you this quick story. My my dad, I would always come to him and tell him, um, you know, oh, yeah, I guess who we got on the on the podcast. And the first thing he'd say is Bernie Federko. And I would always tell him, no, it's not Bernie. And he would always tell me, your show is not legitimate until you have Bernie Federko on. So I think now we're legitimate. So thank you very much for coming on. Jeff, my pleasure. Great to be with you, too. Yep. And uh, also the book, uh, My Blues Note, can be found on Amazon.com. So everybody make sure you check it out there. And uh, if you have not bought it yet, make sure you do that. So, again, uh, Bernie, this was great. And uh, we'll have to have you on again sometime. This was a lot of fun. Sounds good, Jeff. You take care. You, too. Hey, listeners, this is Brandon Bullock. I know, I know. I'm a former Chicago Blackhawk, but I grew up in St. Charles, and I'm a St. Louis in at heart. My wife and I recently co-founded Dana Eve, a health and fitness company that offers convenient workouts for anyone, anytime, anywhere. My wife is also a former athlete. She played Division I college soccer and is now a certified personal trainer. Upon founding this business, we adopted the motto, you can change your life in less than 30 minutes a day. 
After years of constant wear and tear from her sport, Dana developed her own method of training, the DE method, which was designed to go where you go. Using your own body weight along with our Anywhere Gym, Dana will help you achieve lasting fitness in mind, body, and spirit, whether on the move or in the comfort of your own home. Visit www.danaeve.com to start your free trial. That's D-A-N-N-A-H-E-V-E.com. And we are recording the future segment right now of the Let's Go Blues Radio, Pass to the Future. Today we're going to be talking about uh, defenseman Tyler Tucker, who uh, currently has, has played with the Flint Firebirds of the OHL, formerly of the Barry Colts of the OHL as well. We're going to talk to our friend here uh, that we've already had on the show before to talk about Keen Washkaruk. Uh, Marcus Boudelier joins the show from the OHL Network. That's ohlnetwork.ca. And uh, Marcus, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back on. I was looking forward to it. Uh, I know just uh, since we talked last, we've heard some news about some hockey forthcoming. So uh, always good to come on and talk. Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's starting to ramp up a little bit. We're in phase two now of the NHL returning. So uh, you as a Caps fan, I'm sure you're excited to see what the uh, the Caps can do, um, you know, in this uh, kind of tournament style we're about to see started up here. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like I haven't, I almost forgot Kevin Dillon played for the Capitals, you know, it happened so <laughs> quick. So, yeah, it's going to be nice to see a little bit of changes. And uh, I think uh, probably like Blues fans feel, I'm sure Caps fans feel, and I, I think you go down the list, This this any it's anybody's game at this point. I, I couldn't tell you who's going to win. Yeah, I think so. Uh, we were talking just before this um, that I, I found something interesting because you had asked me about uh, – Mark Savard, if he was uh, coaching here in St. Louis, you had missed uh, the news that he joined the staff uh, last summer. And uh, yes, he is. And for those that, that don't know, he's kind of been the power play guy for the Blues. Blues power play has, has improved greatly under Mark Savard. Uh, what's your tie-in with Savard? Well, I, I, back when I was went to high, or sorry, college in Oshawa, Ontario, and I did an internship with the Ottawa Generals, ended up working for him for a year uh, doing a, their pre-public relations and media relations and whatnot. So it was a good opportunity for me to sort of get the ins and outs of junior hockey working behind the scenes. And, and so be it on that team was, was Mark Savard. And uh, I saw him over his last two years of his OHL career, and I got to know him a little bit uh, just being around the team. Uh, doing some bus trips and, and whatnot with him. And uh, obviously he's uh, he's quite quite a player. I think everybody saw it in the NHL. But um, just from my standpoint and, you know, going back about 25 to 30 years of watching junior hockey, he's, he's the best player in terms of puck handling and passing that I've ever seen go through junior hockey. Um, you could argue he's the best player that I've seen. I think uh, my, my, my sort of tick would go to Eric Lindros for that, just basically on the size factor alone. But Mark Svar is one of the best junior players I've ever seen. Um, in the year that I finished there, I went to the Memorial Cup, and uh, the guy scored 130 points in 64 games. Uh, he had uh, 43 goals, and uh, every time he's on the ice, it was just magic. So um, I got to know him, uh, as I said, over a couple of years and there, and uh, I know he's a really good golfer back then, so I can't imagine how good he is now. But uh, it was really interesting to see his career go on in the NHL because uh, a lot of people at the time, remember, he was a six-round draft pick in the OHL, I believe, and was a late-round draft pick in the NHL, and not many people thought he would play. And I think any fans of the Oshawa Generals that went to the Civic Auditorium for those four years of his junior career couldn't believe that. And, of course, when he was playing the NHL, it was nice to say I told you so. So good on him, and, uh, yeah, hell of a player. 
Oh, he was a great player. We, um, I always watched him kind of from afar. He never played for the Blues, but um, I was always impressed by his skill. And it's unfortunate he didn't uh, get to continue his career longer. But uh, again, I think he's making great strides as a uh, as a power play specialist coach and uh, something well, the Blues really needed. I mean, you think a you know a power play guy who likes to set up guys, and 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 Mark Savard, I think, got more enjoyment out of making passes he probably didn't need to make, but wanted to make because they were difficult. Ninety six assists in sixty six games in his second year in the OHL, um, and I believe if uh, Joe Thornton and him were always in a in a point scoring uh, sort of race for the, the title there, uh, Savard got hurt in, his, in in the second of his sorry his last three years in the league. In the middle of those three years, he got hurt. He missed some games. He didn't win the scoring title. Had he not got hurt, there's a real good uh, chance he wins that. And nobody had ever won three years in a row the OHL scoring title. I'm not even sure if it's ever been done since. Certainly at the time it wasn't. So that's a tough thing to do, obviously, in junior hockey. You're only there usually three to four years. So to leave the league in scoring even two out of three years is something special. Yeah, that's insane. And again, knowing the skill he had, for those who have never seen Marcus Savard, Mark Savard play, if you're um, uh, if you're maybe new to hockey and didn't know he's a former player, check out some of his clips on YouTube. He, uh, man, that guy could dangle. That guy could pass. One of the some of the the best set of hands that uh, I think we saw come out of the uh, the the '90s draft classes because he was he was a heck of a hockey player. Yeah, it probably has something to do with his golf game with those hands. Uh, in the in the Memorial Cup uh, playoffs leading up to that, just for uh, you know for fans and statistics, in the 18 games to get them into the Memorial Cup championship, 13 goals, 24 assists, 37 points. I mean, he was all over the, the the ice. And as I said, his passing was just unbelievable. He would he would make saucer passes just to make a saucer pass, even though it wasn't necessary, but it would land right on the guy's stick. It's kind of funny we're sitting here talking about offensive numbers because we're talking about a guy now, uh, Tyler Tucker, who uh, came into the NHL draft in 2018 as a defensive specialist. Uh, a lot of people said he's a character guy. He's a guy that's going to uh, to fight more often than not because that's just the type of guy he is. He's going to back up his teammates. He's, he's going to play solid defense. Uh, not a strong skater was what was said of him. But uh, it's funny because ever since his draft – Things have changed. He's an offensive player now. In uh, last season, in 2019-2020, with the Barry Colts before getting moved to, to Flint, he had 29 points in 28 games. And then with Flint, he was a point-per-game player as well, 27 points in 27 games. Um, what did, I know that you've, uh, you've you followed him felt really, relatively closely. Uh, have you seen a change in his game that's led to more offense? Well, it... <laughs> I think the only change I'm seeing is a more confident player since he got drafted. Uh, I think um, a lot of times you got to remember where, you know, a lot of the, uh, I guess, NHL fans look at him as a seventh round draft pick, you know, 200th overall, but he was actually drafted by Barry in the first round, 14th overall, the OHL. And so, uh, you know, it, there, there was some upside there. Now, you know, it certainly wasn't like he was lighting the lamp a lot either in, in his midget hockey before he came to junior. So, I'm not sure exactly what has changed other than my feeling was it was a player who, who, he just gained a boom load of confidence when he got drafted in the NHL and uh, started to realize that his teammates would rely on him. And so I think he started to take more chances and started to realize that he could actually, you know, stay stay up in the offense. And when things started to happen early in the season, and to your point, last season when it started, or sorry, 2018, it just it's carried on. I think it's just a matter of a player finding his own. And I don't even know that we've seen the best of uh, Tyler Tucker yet. Um, you're, yeah, it, it, 
I think I want to say in his first couple of years, if I recall, it was like under around 0.3 points per game before he got drafted. And I think there's around the same amount of games he's played now since uh, he was drafted around 120, 121 games, something like that. And he's at 0.93 points per game since that, uh, since that uh, blues draft in 123 games. So essentially, I mean, that's like three times the scoring. So that that's not something that just happened overnight. And I was really interested to see his season that that as you just said with the uh, with, with split between Barry and Flint with the fifty five points was to see did, was the year two thousand eighteen nineteen and Barry just a mirage, but evidently not because uh, not only did he keep up with those stats, he's also playing uh, penalty kill and taking a lot more minutes, playing on a top line. You know, with uh, with Riley McCourt, uh, those two see the ice about 35 minutes a game. I mean, if they're not on, it's usually something different or abnormal. So uh, for a guy who continually plays that much, and, and I'm not sure if the knock on him or if you had heard, but just, you know, things like conditioning and things were mentioned, certainly when he was drafted. Well, a guy who's playing 30, 35 minutes a night, still putting up those points and still playing tough minutes, tells you that he's probably taking a little bit of that to heart. And just that in and of itself, growing, being more mature, understanding how to be more healthy and, and get better sleep, whatever it is, it's obviously led to him being more consistent. And I think that's what the biggest difference is from someone in younger in his career who maybe just for other reasons wasn't as consistent. Yeah, Firebirds uh, head coach uh, just recently, Eric Wellwood, uh, said he needs to work a little bit on his conditioning and skating to be in the NHL, but did say he has a very hard shot and he's very smart with the puck. And uh, just, again, listed as one of Sportsnet's 10 biggest surprises uh, during the 2018-19 season. And I think you say surprise, and, and again, you think, okay, this maybe it's a mirage. Let's see if he can bring these numbers back. Uh, and he's done more than that this past season. So a seventh-round pick, 200th overall, and uh, he's putting up some great offensive numbers. And we've talked on this show about a couple different prospects who maybe they're AHL guys, maybe they're – uh, you know, bottom bottom uh, uh, six forwards or something like that. Tyler Tucker is a guy to keep your eye on because there's a chance that this kid's the real deal. Again, he's not. He's probably not going to be your number one defenseman, but um, definitely somebody we might see on an NHL roster uh, coming up here soon. Yeah, I think a lot of times when we talk of uh, NHL draft picks, I mean, minus let's say the top fifteen or so that the, you know in the first round. After that. Um, depending on who you talk to, there's always going to be a certain uh, concern whether or not they even make the league. It's a tough league to make. I mean, and uh, for a seventh round draft pick to make even get a, you know, to be quite honest with you, even to be talked about at this point playing on NHL club is something to be said. And so I, you know, for a seventh round draft pick, I got to say that that's quite a steal. I don't even, I, I wouldn't believe the St. Louis Blues scouting staff if they told me today they expected this kind of numbers out of him. And I, that's clearly not why they were drafting him because he, he wasn't even putting up these numbers in, in as I say, midget hockey. So so I think there's a, quite the bonus and, and obviously, and I think that, uh, like you just mentioned, there's no, I, I think with Tyler Tucker, it's not it's not a question of, of whether or not he can play in the NHL. I think he will. It's going to be a matter of when he gets there. Does he still be able to maintain that conditioning to, to be able to play a professional game? And and does he not take a night off? As we know, some players can can do that when they start to become older and junior and they're playing against 16-year-olds when they're four years older. And all of a sudden, you know, you're an 18, 19-year-old playing against potentially 30, 35-year-olds. You know, all of a sudden, you're the guy that needs to be sprouting quick and whatnot. So we, we'll see the transition to pro hockey, but... I mean, it doesn't. You don't. I don't think anybody needs me to 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 tell him Tyler Tucker's taken a turn the last two years. Certainly, not only on the scoreboard, but in his conditioning, and that tells me that a he's not only a player that wants to play in the NHL, but I think he realizes what he has to do to get there. 
Yeah, and uh, now we've talked a lot about his offense. Again, he's turned his game around offensively, but defensively, he's still a guy that uh, that definitely can bring it. Uh, Bill Armstrong, the director of Blue Scouting, uh, says uh, a couple quotes from when he drafted uh, Tyler Tucker in 2018. He said, quote, this kid's all character, called him an old school D-man, he'll fight, will make a difference in the game. And then uh, one of his quotes that I thought stuck out to me, this kid's going to give you everything he's got. So, again, as a seventh-round pick, um, these the guys who do make the NHL from, that, from really the fifth round on, I think, are guys that they have to prove every single night that they've got what it takes to make the NHL. And it seems like uh, uh, Tucker is a kid who's got plenty of determination and uh, might be seeing time in the NHL soon. But I wanted to ask you specifically, we talked a little bit before about a uh, former Blues defenseman that you think uh, this kid kind of mirrors his game after. Uh, who does he look like uh, that's currently in the NHL? Well, as, uh, yeah, as uh, we were talking before, and obviously uh, everybody be familiar with the Joel Edmondson from uh, from the Blues, his time there. And uh, a little bit of size difference. I mean, we have to understand, I think uh, Tucker's a couple inches shorter, but not that much lighter, 10, 15 pounds, but they play a similar game. And what we're seeing the, in projection-wise is the numbers Evanson was putting up in the NHL in terms of goal scoring. And, and I think we do need to be careful in understanding that uh, uh, we should Tucker's still not being brought into the St. Louis Blues organization to score goals from the blue line. Anything he scores is still going to be a bonus. But I think he's going to score and has more potential to score than Joel Edmondson. And so when you have a player who plays the same style of game and uh, he may not be uh, as uh, as intimidating, so to speak, as Edmondson uh, in terms of getting in altercations with other teams, but he's certainly going to be there. He's not going to shy away. And and uh, I think that it doesn't really change the way Tucker plays, that he's a little bit smaller. So to me, I think he's Joel Edmondson, just a little smaller. That's hey, that's not bad. Blues fans love Joel Edmondson. Uh, a couple people were, well, a lot of people were sad to see him go in that trade, but uh, obviously, Blues getting Justin Falk back, a guy they figured could be a number one defenseman if they need him to be, um, not a bad move. But it's the, uh, it's, oh, the, it's, the, it's the intent. It's sorry, Jeff. It's the it's the intangibles, right? I, I love Justin Falk to be honest. Um, I played him a lot, you know, as a Caps fan. But he's not. Uh, he doesn't have that sandpaper Edmondson had, and 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 doesn't have that Tucker has, and. And uh, so, you know, it depends on the makeup of the rest of your team, obviously, and, and, and whatnot. And I think we've seen with St. Louis Blues, I just, we were talking with uh, about Washkaruk and, and the head coach being a Craig Bruby. Again, uh, Tyler Tucker's the, the style that the Blues are looking for. Yeah, a tough defenseman. That's definitely something that uh, a couple of years ago, I remember the Blues, uh, the, the big knock on them was they didn't have the tough defenseman. And now we're starting to see that with some of these guys coming up. Um, Tyler Tucker being one of them. Um, so uh, what do you see coming now? Now, obviously, for those that didn't see, Tyler Tucker uh, did sign a uh, three-year entry-level contract with St. Louis on March 1st. So he's ready to go. Uh, do you think he... His birthday. Yeah, that was his 20th birthday, right? Yeah, yeah you yep. got her. Yep. So he, uh, yeah, signed a big deal there. And then obviously, I think we'll be seeing him in Springfield of the AHL next year. How quickly do you think he gets a call up to the NHL, even if it's just for one or two games? Uh, the, you know, uh, he could play, he could play a game or, or fill in in the NHL right now. Again, the consistency part and the, and especially as a defenseman, I think we, uh, me and you both know it's taking some type take years, but certainly more than, more than a jump right out of junior to, to play NHL hockey as a defenseman that that's rare even for the best of them. So, 
Um, could he could he come up and play in some games? Uh, yeah, I, there's a, just simply because he's got the size, the strength, the ability to help uh, sort of not only help himself but help his teammates if he has to. And and I think we talked about his shot. He can beat NHL goalies with that shot. I mean, it, it's a howitzer. Um, so he can fill in. Uh, I, I think right now I would, I would potentially like to see him playing top minutes, literally like, uh, you know, never getting off the ice for in the AHL for at least a year for sure. But, uh, from what I seen, he, he could fill in, he could, he could, he could have played a game this year. You know what I mean? Like he's got, he's already, he's a man already. Right. Yeah. That's hey, that's again, good news. You get anything out of your seventh round pick. I think that's a, a very, very good thing for the blues. And, um, and again, I think, if the draft were to take place now, um, I think you would see yeah. him go, go much higher. Would you agree oh, with that? I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the the because I think with that shot alone, as you know, when, when he starts to get uh, learning bit more more ways to get open, um, different coaches uh, helping him play different positions, specifically on the power play, and he's getting more time there. I mean, with that shot, he I think last season I had it down like four games in 55 games last year where he didn't get a shot. That's a defenseman. And in games, I think he had eight games where he had five shots or more. Again, from from the blue line. So, you know, with that shot, I, I'd be I'd be concerned if I was other teams that didn't draft him in the first six rounds. So, I mean, um, the the toughness, yeah, he's no nonsense player, but he's also plays it smart. Um, basically, because he he's built a lot of credibility in the league. And if you see any a net fronts presence guy, as you know, when there's a sort of a scrum, but there's always that guy out there when. He kind of shows up, people just sort of disperse. And, and Tucker's that player in the OHL, right? So, you know, granted, he's a little bit ways away from being able to do that in the NHL, such as a Tom Wilson or, or Ryan Reeves or somebody like that. I'm not sure if he'll ever get to that stage, but that's the style he plays. And that, and then that's uh, sort of led, leads itself to understanding that how tough this guy is because, yeah, we, we don't want to get caught up in the numbers and we understand why he was drafted originally. So um, the fighting majors this year, if, you, if anybody hasn't seen it, uh, Evan Mutter, a uh, place for Hamilton. I would arguably say the best fighter in the OHL and, and him and Tucker went out at center ice. Um, these are two guys that actually dropped the gloves and skated over to center ice. So that tells you another Tucker's not afraid to literally go to the center stage. Right. So yeah, they went out as one of the better fights I've seen. It was a 10, nothing loss to, to, uh, or sorry, it was at a loss to Hamilton. I gotten out of hand. And then, uh, the very next night he was instigated upon in a fight in Sarnia against Jameson Reese because, uh, if you get in uh, two NCAAs, Joey Charlie gets suspended. So, so you do have to watch that. But uh, so he doesn't fight all the time anymore. He did earlier in his OHL career, but uh, it's uh, when it's necessary. I mean, look out. So uh, <laughs> the reason Tucker does not fight as much in the OHL is simply because you know guys do not want to fight him. Yeah, no, if he was that, you know, at the end of the day, guy, the young guys might test him out, but. But, uh, you know, Tyler Tucker is definitely considered one of the tougher guys in the league. But um, one week, I'm not sure if you guys had heard out there, but he was the on-the-run T- or, uh, OHL player of the week. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that week, but this is for all this toughness we're talking about. He had 11 points in three games, set a fl- uh, Flint Firebirds record for players. Points in a single game was seven. He had two goals and five assists and also had was plus eight rating in that game, which set a single game record for Flint Firebirds. That was a 12-7 win against Sarnia. Um, and then uh, that was during the midst of a 15-game win streak that Flint did this year. So that was quite the run they had. And, uh, you know, for a guy to get eight or, sorry, seven points in a game from any spot, but certainly, again, from a defenseman standpoint, again, just shows you it's not, uh, you know, seven points a game is not normal, but uh, he certainly has has the ability or the capability to actually have a breakout game here or there and help you win on the board while also helping you keep pucks out of the net. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, again, for a seventh-round pick, for it to turn out to anything is is impressive, and I think that's definitely a player Blues fans should keep an eye on uh, as he joins the uh, Springfield team in the AHL this year after signing with the Blues on March 1st. So Tyler Tucker, uh, a guy you, you want to keep in the back of your mind uh, whenever there's a, a defensive uh, um, opening in the St. Louis Blues blue line. Um, Marcus, I wanted to ask you about uh, OHLnetwork.ca. Obviously, right now we're still in the midst of, uh, I guess, the offseason. Um, and I know that uh, we're not really sure when the seasons are going to resume across the world, but um, uh, OHLnetwork.ca is, is obviously where you need to go to check out anything about the OHL. Um, tell us about what's going on over there uh, whenever the season ramps up and you guys start uh, having something to actually talk about. Yeah, no, appreciate the time. Uh, we uh, just finished our first year covering the league. Obviously, uh, with the you know season being short as it was, we didn't have uh, sort of the the desire or sort of the um, ability to finish the way we wanted. And so, next year we're looking at just doing some things a little bit different to try and get more coverage out in a more generalistic way versus having some specific team uh, writers that we do now. And so we're we're getting really good coverage from from certain teams. And unfortunately, without the ability to have uh, specific writers in certain cities, it can get a little difficult to try and ensure that we're spreading coverage generally. So just a little bit of reformatting going on so that next year we can ensure we have a little bit more general coverage in the entire league. And uh, we have a couple uh, new things coming up in terms of a YouTube channel. We're just waiting on, like everybody else, uh, to know when the start of the season is going to happen. Uh, with the Ontario Hockey League, uh, for those not familiar out here, there has been no announcement like the NHL. We, we still are, have no uh, sort of, to be honest, idea at all when the season is going to start or if it's going to start even at all on time. Uh, there was some news out of Ontario the other day. I know uh, Queen's University Sports, which plays in uh, similar to the United States NCAA, has announced their football and hockey seasons will not be starting in September. So not sure if that means uh, their seasons are done or postponed. But but again, that, that does lead into some questions for junior hockey players who are also involved in school. Yeah, uh, very weird times indeed. I, I, I mean, talking about uh, the, the upcoming NHL end of the 2019-2020 season. I mean, that's weird enough. And then you look at everything that's going on across the world again. I mean, um, you know, a lot of colleges out here. I know, uh, I, I can't remember who it was, the Arkansas school. Just uh, uh, they were about to lose their uh, their hockey program. And luckily, uh, they, they had people step in and donate money and they were able to bring it back. But um, yeah, it's a very crazy time right now. So hopefully everything gets figured out and uh, we see some OHL hockey, and we see these kids being able to get educated in the way they need to, uh, you know, whenever we can get back to normal life here, which I, I'm hoping we are slowly getting to right now. Well, it will be it will be fun. And I know uh, at least we saw the awards come out here recently. So, again, I think we touched on it, I think, on the last show. But for those who haven't heard of him, Shane Wright from the Kings of Frontenacs was picked the Canadian Hockey League Rookie of the Year, which uh, incorporates all three junior leagues in Canada. He'd already won the OHL Rookie of the Year a couple of weeks ago. And so this was almost just a, you know, not, not really very well hidden secret. So for those who haven't checked him out, go uh, go check his highlights out and uh, – I think you'll you'll know uh, who will who will be gunning for number one overall in 2022 when when Shane Wright becomes draft eligible. So uh, again, that's OHLnetwork.ca, and I specifically bring Marcus on because I think you guys really do a great job covering the league. So Thank anyone you. interested in prospects, make sure you check out the OHLnetwork.ca. Marcus, in terms of you, um, how can people interact with you on social media, and where can they um, find anything you have to to write or? 
anything you've got going on in terms of uh, hockey coverage. Yeah, you can find me at Twitter at Boot Hockey, B-O-U-T-H-O-C-K-E-Y, if you want to talk junior hockey. Uh, if you're more in HL, you can find me at Sport Major at S-P-O-R-T-M-A-J-O-R. And then, of course, I, uh, I add out content, at, as uh, Jeff mentioned, at ohlnetwork.ca. You can find that on Twitter, which is at network underscore OHL. Awesome. Well, Marcus, thank you very much for joining the show. We really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Of course. Well, big thanks goes out to Bernie and to Marcus. Uh, remember, folks, to check out letsgoblues.com slash radio. That is our show page for uh, any anything to do with the show. Of course, letsgoblues.com shop is where you can find shirts and stickers. And I don't really say this much anymore, but uh, keep in mind, too, that uh, if you'd want a Let's Go Blues Radio jersey, if you've seen those on social media, um, you can reach out to me, jponder94 at gmail.com. We can get you all set up. Uh, it's just an easy way of uh, doing it. It's just easier if you just reach out to me. So if you would like to get yourself a Let's Go Blues Radio jersey, just reach on out, and I'll be happy to set that up for you. Uh, make sure you're subscribing to our show on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Again, you can also listen over at letsgoblues.com slash radio. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us that five-star rating and leave a review. That helps people find the show. Twitter handles. Show Twitter is at LGB Radio. Kurt Price is at Kurt Price. That's Kurt with a C. Bill Day, Billy Blue Note, and myself, Jeff Ponder, Ponder 94 Also remember, we are on Facebook at Let's Go Blues. And we're also on Instagram, which is LGB Radio. So that's a, a couple more ways you can stay in touch with us. We're very active on all of our social media channels. So make sure you check us out if you haven't already. Our next show, well, stay tuned. But I will say that we've got a couple interviews uh, on the way. I, I, I've got a couple former Blues that I know that uh, we'll be releasing episodes of soon. Um, and then also we've got Greg Boyson of the Hockey Riders coming back on. Uh, he's got plenty more to talk about with uh, some AHL prospects for the Blues, as well as a couple other people I've got in the pipeline to talk about Blues prospects. But want to give Greg a big shout-out. He's been a big part of the prospect talk. And then, of course, Marcus, too, coming back on uh, for the second time and talking another Blues prospect. Um, really appreciate that, guys, and, and appreciate everybody who has participated in this special edition of Let's Go Blues Radio. Well, that will conclude this very special episode. I want to thank everybody for listening, and again, I want to thank Bernie Federko and Marcus Boudelier for joining the show. On behalf of Kurt Price and Bill Day, I'm Jeff Ponder, and Let's Go Blues! Uh, the Chiefs are at home tonight against Cyanusport at the War Memorial at 8. Good seats are still available. A look at sports. I think that went very well. Thank you for listening to Let's Go Blues Radio. Now take off, hosers. Well, there's 90 minutes of your life you'll never get back. Sorry. St. <laughs> Louis Blues. St. Louis Blues. Have you heard the news about us? St. Louis Blues. They've only just begun, they're on their way to number one. Now there's no more blues for our St. Louis Blues. The Blues are on the ice tonight again. They're rough and tough and got the stuff to win. They'll always get one more, no matter what the score. They are quite a hockey team, my friends.